It is now time for us to have our question time. Uh, I just might lead us in prayer uh, for my eldest son, Oscar. He's uh, had a bit of an accident while we've been down on uh, camp, uh, broken his leg in a few places, and uh, he sounds like he'll be being transported up to Wollongong for a CT scan in his leg, so he's done a reasonably good job of it. Um, so we can just pray for him and uh, also for the rest of the camp, uh, just as they you know, get over the fact that one of their number is going to be spending some time in hospital and uh, not on camp. So let me lead them in prayer. Loving Father, we ask now that uh, you'd be with Oscar and comfort him and be with the medical staff as they look at his leg and work out the best way to treat it. We pray that you would be with the rest of the camp, uh, that this would not be too much of a distraction for them, that they would continue to have a great time away reflecting on what it means to be a believer in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the comfort we have of prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, it's time now for your questions. Uh, now, we had a whole lot more questions than this. They were asked by some of our teenagers who have gone away on camp, as I mentioned. And the good thing is that there were so many questions that I can roll those ones across over to next week. And some of the other questions are for this week. And uh, there are seven in all. And here's the first one. And that is, where does the Bible say that the Holy Spirit is a he? Now, that's a good question. Now, on the one hand, what we can do is we can look at the original language, the Greek and in Greek, what they have is they have each noun has a, uh, a gender to it. You know, with that, if, you've, if you've ever studied French or something at, at school, you'll know that you have masculine nouns and feminine nouns and neuter nouns, which is sort of like neither male nor female. Uh, you can kind of do a little bit of work and say, because of the nouns that are used and the adjectives, it points to the fact that the Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. Now... Yes. Now, that's probably not the most persuasive answer, though. Um, you can t ask me the questions, why over dinner? It's a bit nerdy. But um, I did a little bit of research on this, and there's a great guy called Justin Taylor. He's a, he's a pom who's smart. And uh, he has written a little article on this where he, it's called, How Do We Know the Holy Spirit is a Person? I found it on the internet. Lots of good things in there amidst all the rubbish. But he said basically that a more fruitful response, he says, is to first ask a question almost no one asks, he says. How do we know that the Father is a person? How about the Son? And then what he does, it's a quite clever way of thinking about the answer to this, is he goes through all the things that the Spirit does that are personal and relational. For example, the fact that the Spirit speaks, the fact that the Spirit thinks and feels and acts makes decisions, can be grieved, can be outraged, can be lied to, and helps us. And when you see this, you see that the Holy Spirit truly is a person and not just some impersonal force. And this is very important, not only in our understanding of the Holy Spirit, but also in the understanding of who God is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons. Uh, sorry, um, uh, one God, three persons. And because of all of this, it seems clear that, the per that he is a person, a he. Question two. How did the Bible writer know that Judas went to hell? Well, anyone who rejects Jesus will go to hell, not heaven. That's pretty clear in the Bible. And it's very clear that Judas rejected Jesus in a really obvious way. 
And so that's why the apostles can say in Acts chapter 1, which we looked at the week before last, that he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Question 3. After Pentecost, did the believers speak their original languages? Remember what happened? Pentecost came and all these blokes who basically just knew Galilee, well, the Galilean sort of dialect of, of Greek, uh, they were suddenly able to speak in all these other languages. And the question is, did they continue to have that skill or did it go away and revert back to what they were like before? I think it was probably the case that they reverted back to their original languages at that point after that particular day. Question four, how long did it take to baptise 3,000 people? Well, uh, I didn't get a clear answer to this, so I'm going to have to sort of give you a bit of my research and my gut feel. Uh, I mentioned to you last week that the Pentecost speech, the, pre the preaching there, happened on the steps leading up to the temple. And there is, a, a, around those temple steps, there are many different ritual baths that were known, and they had the name mikvot, right? And that's where the Jews would go to before they went up to the temple. They'd go into it, it's kind of the size of a large spa with the little steps that you went in and you got washed ritually and then you got out of it all ritually clean, probably a different way than what you went in and you were ready to go up to the temple. It seems very likely that all these baths that were there were repurposed so that the 3,000 people could be baptised. In fact, I even found out that there was one really giant mikvot it was kind of like a swimming pool. So, probably they didn't have an entire prayer book service that went for an hour to baptise each one of them. Uh, more than likely, they just all got splashed around and got wet. And in the name of Jesus, they were baptised in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or however it was that they went about doing their baptisms then. They probably did it in a few hours' time. And, you know, you can wet 3,000 people pretty quickly. Uh, we know that because we've been to the Jamboree Action Park. Though there were no water slides, I think, at the front of the temple. Question five. Why were people healed after touching Jesus? Interesting, isn't it? Some, some of these questions I've not thought about, uh, really. I've just sort of a sh just thought, yeah, it's a thing. Well, in Mark chapter five, there was a woman who had a problem with bleeding. And so she went and touched Jesus and she touched his outfit. And we know from Mark chapter 5, verse 30, we, we read that Jesus realised at once that healing power had gone out from him. And so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? Something has happened that when his robe, when his outfit was touched, that the power went from him to her to enable her to be able to be healed. Now, in some sort of way, this physical gesture from the sick people I think it must have shown their dependence upon Jesus and, in fact, upon also the, uh, the disciples that we're going to see tonight as well. The similar thing happened from time to time. That that dependence, it was a, a physical gesture that said, I trust that Jesus is able to heal. And through that physical gesture, that happened. Two to come. Question six. Can Christians perform healing miracles today? Well, anything's possible with God, of course. But it seems most likely to me that what happened with Jesus and the apostles was something that was very special and that we shouldn't necessarily expect it to happen in the same way today. What did the healings do? Well, they proved that Jesus was the Son of God. 
And it proved also that his apostles had the power to lead his church at this important time in the history of Christianity. We also see at this time that the, the kinds of miracles were very spectacular. Uh, they were not sort of like somebody who has had some back pain has relief from some back pain. It was, this is the, the kind of thing we saw was seriously dramatic. Today we're going to see a guy who had been living for 40 years of his life without able, the ability to use his legs at all and suddenly is miraculously healed. Uh, that's the kind of healing that we saw time and time again. So I've got to say that, generally speaking, I'm a little sceptical of many of the healings that are performed today by healing people who, who do these healings on demand and so on. It's not to say that God doesn't do amazing healings. He does, and we hear stories of people who went to the doctor very sick, went back to the doctor and are no longer sick, and the doctor says, I have no way to explain how you have been made well. That certainly happens. But whether it happens in the same way where a person will have a healing ministry and so on, in just the same way, uh, I'm sceptical because I think that it was a thing that was given at a particular time in the history of God's people with a particular purpose. So question seven, finally, what stops Christians performing healing miracles today? Well, again, I think that the purpose of those healing miracles back then was firstly to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And secondly, to show that his apostles had the power to be able to launch that church as they did in that first moment then. But notice, the most powerful and impressive thing, even in the book of Acts, is not the miracles. The most powerful and impressive thing was actually the preaching of God's word. Because it says they heard about Jesus, that they were saved, and their lives were transformed. And that is what we're going to see more and more as we look at today's passage and ones after that.